you've uh, this uh, this past uh, uh, we're walking through this this process of uh, veni ve or come and see, and you can see uh, all, as we walk through all uh, a number of passages from John's gospel over the course of this semester, how fun that's going to be. I was thinking about this uh, as I was preparing to speak this morning this past fall when I had another opportunity to speak at a conference at a gathering of a lot of college students. And as I continue to get a little bit older, I have three boys of my own that are all uh, in their 20s, almost all three of them finished with the university. And I, I wanted to relate to these college students that I was speaking about without coming off uh, as a person who's just old enough to be their dad, right? Uh, and trying to find some good, uh, a, a good platform where I could, uh, I could relate with them. But to be honest, relating with college students can be, at my age, a little dangerous, right? Uh, but so I went and, you know, you go through and think, and it's like I'm kind of a sports fan, and a lot of college are sports fans. Uh, so, right, this shouldn't be a problem. I mean, I'm a Cowboys fan, and a lot of people are Cowboys fans, right? It's early in the season at that time, and we're looking pretty good. But then I started thinking about the Dallas Cowboys, and the Dallas Cowboys that I know at my age are not the Dallas Cowboys that they know at their age. And so here was the way I attempted to make a connection with them. I said, you know, the difference between me being my age and you being your age uh, is that I have been alive for every Super Bowl that the Cow Dallas Cowboys have won. And you've not been alive for any of them. <laughs> it's a little sad. Uh, I don't think that I really made much of a connection with that statement, but we carried on. Uh, and this is Super Bowl Sunday this morning, you know, as a, at festivities in the afternoon. Uh, and I'm just glad that I have the pleasure of talking to what I would call a more mature uh, audience who may have memories of the distant past and what I would call the glory days. The Cowboys started strong this year. We all thought things would be different. But when it came down to the very game that we should have easily won, it just ended sadly again. And at the end of this season, I went back to start thinking a bit about my disappointment. And the funny thing about my disappointment is, is it actually started with hope and expectation. Hope and expectation. How does that happen? How did after recent history did I find myself in that place? And I thought, you know, it actually starts with whispers. Whispers of a new coach, coaching staff here and there. Whispers of people that have come in from the drafts and the trade. It got whipped up by fans and we all start getting a little bit excited about the rumors that are going around. And it's all about people who don't know if it's gonna be true, but people who really want it to be true. And then you add in what I just call the haters, the people that say it's never gonna be true, but for those of us that are truly fans, that hating, because haters are gonna hate, right? It galvanizes even deeper what we desperately want to be true. For some strange reason in my personality, I, I haven't figured it out. I not only love the Cowboys and, and the fact that when they do well, but I also simultaneously love all the funny things that people post when they don't do well. 
And so I pulled up just a few of them and, and some of them you may have to think about for a moment. Uh, so here's, here's the first one. Cowboy Bowl, Cowboys Super Bowl pictures. For some of you that don't get the joke, maybe you're a little bit young, I just want you to go back and ask your grandpa where he is, uh, where he has backed up all of the photos that he scanned, okay? He'll help you to understand. So that's one. Of course, we have to bring, uh, we have to bring someone else into the equation here. Uh, I'm having a hard time making this work. Can I get a little help back there, Stan? Next one. Uh, maybe the most famous football fan of all now, right? Taylor Swift has now made it to the Super Bowl before Dak Prescott. <laughs> Thought that one was uh, a little bit sad. And then the next one, somebody, I appreciate this. It's the pathology of uh, celebrating Cowboys. Season starts, we beat up on bad teams. Fans get delusional and happy. Uh, we're the boys this year, right? And then we choke in the playoffs and then we start. And this is where we were <laughs> at the end uh, of the, the, the season. But the one that really struck me the most had the, uh, this one was kind of funny. It's like maybe the, uh, maybe the best usage of the Dallas Cowboys Stadium is actually just to host FIFA soccer uh, when it comes around. It's like, okay, that's, that's both fun and sad. Uh, and then the last one uh, was the, the most desperate of all. And I saw this picture on Facebook Marketplace. Simply a person who had taken their Dallas Cowboys hat and placed it on Marketplace, put it up for sale, and they didn't even leave a description. Why? It didn't need one. Everyone knew. But some never allow hope to die, right? They never allow hope to die. So you get into this place uh, where uh, this person, I, I saw it, um, they said this. It's like, I would burn all of my Dallas Cowboys gear but I'm gonna need it next year when we, when we win the Super Bowl. They've already turned the corner into the next place. And we all know fans that are like that. In a strange way, the context of what we're talking about in this, in this passage, it begins, that we're gonna cover this morning, it sounds a little bit uh, like when even spiritually our hope is deferred. At the opening of the Gospels, we begin to hear, just like in fandom, we begin to hear these whispers. This uncertain pregnancy turns into a miraculous birth. The angels announce, wise men visit, shepherds adore, and in the midst, all of this happening in the midst of a very chaotic world. Those who oppose the rumors, the haters, uh, they, they begin to say hateful things that lead ultimately to tragic consequences. And while some know it to be absolutely true, you think of Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon. Most people just think it's another false rumor stirring up an old prophecy that never seems to be realized. We need to remember that even after Jesus' birth, people still had to wait 30 more years before Jesus announced himself into his personal ministry. And that's even longer than the last Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl. This past week, we heard about what it was like for the rumors of the coming kingdom to be announced by John the Baptist, that after 400 years of silence, things started happening very quickly. 
out of the blue came a man known by those in Galilee who was wearing funny clothes and eating funny food and saying funny things. It was news that everybody wanted to hear, but it was news to which people were afraid to open their hearts. For some in hearing John's message, as he said, I am a voice that is crying out in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord. For some, it was just more noise. For others, it was wishful thinking. And for, the, for some, it might have even pulled them near a hope that they were too afraid to express and too afraid to condone. Some went beyond the Jordan to listen out of curiosity, but there were just very few people who actually believed in him. Last week's sermon, um, in last week's sermon, Samuel left us with these four, uh, these four points uh, to, uh, as, as, as application. He said, right identity leads to right purpose. Right purpose leads us to right sensitivity. Right sensitivity is because of right devotion and right devotion leads to right focus on the Holy Spirit and a challenge to learn more about the story of Jesus. Last week, we began to pass out this little book. Uh, it's a bilingual copy of, uh, of John's gospel. And I hope that many of you were able to pick one of these up. We got more of them in the mail this week uh, so that between now and Easter, we can spend time in this precious book that, uh, that John the evangelist wrote down for us so that we could understand who Jesus was. We're really hoping that God will lead us to a place of corporate reading during this uh, semester so that we can be challenged and changed as a community. We have more copies today outside if you need one. As we look more intently into this book of the Bible, we see that the Gospel of John is, is centered around three different lists of seven different things. First are there are seven I am statements uh, made by Jesus throughout the book and we're actually gonna end up our semester walking through those seven I am statements. Second, there are seven sign miracles that exist throughout the book that help us uh, to validate Jesus, who he is, and the claims that he made. And third, there are seven times in the book uh, where Jesus reveals uh, his deity to other people. The first was to John the Baptist at his baptism, and the sign was the descending dove that rested upon him. And today's passage starts just after that and starts with a bit of a time marker that tells us that in the next day, uh, the next day, uh, John again was standing uh, with two of his disciples, with two of John the Baptist's own disciples. Biblical, biblical chronology, especially in the Gospels, is sometimes a little bit confusing and difficult to figure out, but it seems like what's happening is that John has already baptized Jesus. He had probably done so right in the sight of these two men that we're about to meet. And, uh, and they're gonna be the subject of today's passage. While Jesus' baptism is covered in lots of detail in the other gospels, the author simply here highlights the importance of announcing Jesus in an unconventional way. And while last week Samoa brought to our attention the reaction of John the Baptist uh, as he saw and baptized Jesus, this morning, we're gonna get the chance 
to see the reaction of two of John's own disciples. Of the two disciples, only one of them is named, uh, uh, mentioned by name, his name is Andrew, but the other one is not. And the day after Jesus was baptized, they were standing somewhere close alongside uh, of John the Baptist when Jesus walks by. I'm sure that they had already heard of Jesus, uh, but they might have missed a chance for a personal interaction. And this was gonna be the day where that could happen. Right here in the next verse, uh, it says that uh, he, John the Baptist speaking, uh, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, whether Jesus was being instructive to his disciples or maybe he was just making a proclamation uh, in general to those that were standing around, we don't know. Uh, But he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, and when we look and read the Bible, sometimes the reactions that we have to God's word may not be the exact reactions of those uh, who heard it when it was being spoken for the first time. We're not always aware of the cultural things that are happening in those moments, and sometimes uh, we don't have the exact same type of knowledge of uh, the Old Testament and the immediate referencing that many of those uh, men and women had back then from being more familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. But there was enough trust in John's words being true that it pointed these two disciples to move on from John who they'd been following to Jesus when he was identified. So when John utters, behold the Lamb of God, I think fireworks must have gone on, uh, gone off inside the heads of these two disciples. It's like when we're watching a movie and we get some kind of a plot twist uh, early on that we don't fully understand, but then later in the movie it makes sense and our head kind of blows up a little bit and we wonder how in the world did we miss that? What seemed so small earlier now seems so clear. Let's just look at a couple of the places that those two disciples' thoughts might have gone. The first might have been to Genesis 22. Do you remember the story? In Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to go make a sacrifice on Mount Moriah and to be sure to take his son Isaac, who had been born under very miraculous circumstances. God asked him to take the wood and the knife But when Abraham asked about what to sacrifice, God simply said that he would provide. And even when Isaac asked about the necessary items for sacrifice, the the response was this. Said Abraham said to his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now the details of this story can be really difficult for us to understand today, but I think that God wanted to teach something to Abraham, uh, a significant lesson about both sacrifices and sons. See, the people of the land in that day, they had a bad habit of trying to uh, appease their idols, to appease their gods, and oftentimes they would do that by sacrificing their own children. And he wanted, God wanted Abraham to understand that he was not like the other gods. So he told uh, Abraham, uh, he wanted him to understand that I don't receive worship like the appeasement of those other gods. He wanted Abraham to understand 
that he was taking him on a path of faith. So he told Abraham to strap his son Isaac down on the altar in the manner of the Canaanites. But when Abraham raised his knife, God stopped him from harming Isaac because God wanted Abraham to know three things. First, he said, the nation that I'm building through you is not like the other nations. The true God wasn't demanding horrible sacrifice. The second is that any sacrifice that we make of our own provision, even something precious, is not sufficient to make payment for our own sins. And the third thing is that when the right time comes, that God will make the provision. He's the only one to make the provision that can allow for our sins to be forgiven. And if you know the rest of the story, God allowed Abraham to look and see a ram, a young ram that was caught in the, in the thicket by the horns. And it was the sacrifice in that moment that God had provided for Abraham to make, uh, make his sacrifice for worship. Another place where the disciples' thoughts might have gone is Exodus 12. Later in the story of God's people, uh, just before Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, God instituted the Passover meal. And again, a lamb was provided by this time the family and eaten in a special manner among the Jews as it is uh, done even to this day. This was done to remind the people of how God saved their precious sons from a certain death. So the mention of the Lamb of God would have immediately made connection with these two disciples regarding the Messiah. But even though they caught the connection to the past, this promise of provision, it would still be quite a while before they could see the connection to where Jesus was going, that he himself would become the sacrificial lamb for his people. That lesson would have to wait until the upper room and into the garden the Last Supper in John 13 through 17. In our passage, he continues on, and he says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, okay? We've already talked a little bit in the past couple of sermons about what it means to be a disciple, one that moves from being a listener to a follower, okay? We talked about that, progressing to one who identifies with the messenger himself and follows him with his life. When we talk about the word followed, it's not a difficult word in the Greek. It's really pretty simple, and it means to follow, but it presupposes that there's a person going somewhere to whom we can follow, right? That that person is, has a plan, and we're identifying with where that person is going. Given the divine nature of John the Baptist's calling, it was only natural for him to lose his followers once Jesus arrived because his mission was mostly done. The two listeners that were first with John the Baptist that are now transferring their interest to Jesus as uh, they began to follow him understood that John was the sign. Jesus is the fulfillment. But Jesus didn't have their full commitment as of yet. Thirty, Verse 38 says, uh, he turned, that Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said, what are you seeking? Jesus may be hearing John the Baptist as well, at least seeing these two men that were now following him around. He wanted to know their purpose and their motivation for leaving John and beginning to follow him, and he asked, what are you seeking? 
The way it's worded in the Greek is great. Uh, it talks about what is the goal of your following. As you follow me, what are you trying to attain? And Jesus wanted to make sure that his followers were on the same page as him and that they were willing to walk in the same direction. He moves to the next, the next uh, part of that verse. And he sa they said to him, Rabbi, where are you, where are you staying? And it doesn't really make sense sometimes when we think about what Jesus asked and how these guys answered, okay? What's the, signif the significance of what they were trying to, uh, when they addressed Jesus as rabbi? They were putting themselves in the learner's position knowing that Jesus had further revelation for them to, uh, to speak. One of my favorite uh, professors in, uh, in the seminary where I went was a, a guy named Dr. Pentecost. Great name for a seminary professor, right? Uh, he wrote one of my favorite books on the gospels called The Words and Works of Jesus Christ. And he writes, a rabbi was a term of highest respect given to the Jews, okay? To those who were prepared to interpret the law. See, these two guys, they might've begun to wonder if Jesus was the Messiah, but they wanted to hear him explain things to them, which they did over the course of the next day. It's not so much that they said, hey, where are you staying? As much as they were asking, hey, where are you staying? We've been with John the Baptist, but we want to transfer our interest to you. I love the word play within this verse because there's a very common Greek word that means to stay. The word is minnow. Uh, and it has a number of different meanings throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, as a matter of fact, John loves this word. He uses it over 40 different times uh, in, his, in his Gospel writing. Uh, and so one of the things that he, uh, one of the places that it comes up with kind of a deeper meaning, uh, it can mean where do you live or where do you stay, but it also means uh, to abide. And as we get down to the place of John 15, he says, abide in me, it's the same word. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So really they were asking, hey, where are you staying? But kind of, hey, where are you setting up shop? Where can we find you again? Where can we get more of this teaching that you're, you're, you're speaking about? We wanna go pack our stuff in the camp of John the Baptist and we wanna move in to the camp where you're going to be teaching your new followers. And Jesus simply answered, come and see, come and see. Sometimes I look at other languages to, uh, to find how was it expressed, ones that I have a bit uh, of a relationship with. And I love the way the Chinese puts this because it's kind of a, it minimizes things as much as it can. And it just say, it says, kan lie, or lie kan. It says, come, see. And I wish that my response to Jesus would be as simple as that. That when Jesus speaks, that I would just come and see what's happening. And these disciples, it says, that so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him for the rest of that day for it was the 10th hour. These young men were fishermen as a trade, but their hearts, when we look at them, had been inclined to believe that the Messiah was coming. 
And all they needed at this point was just an invitation and a bit of directions. And Jesus said, come and see. And their response changed their lives. And in a way, their response changed our lives as well. As I said before, the word follow has a lot of different meanings uh, now as it did back then, but I can't laugh when I think about what the most common thought about the word follow is now as it relates to Instagram. <laughs> uh, I'm not much of an Instagram person. As a matter of fact, I can tell you from an example, uh, today, as of today, I have 302 followers. Watch out Taylor Swift, right? 302, and I have zero posts. <laughs> zero posts. So either 302 souls that have made a choice to allow my life to influence theirs are absolutely lost without my instruction, or the button that says follow might be a little more casual in nature than what it was for these two disciples. We go on and we see that this story explains in verse, starting in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, uh, Simon, Peter's, uh, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, so finally, one of these two disciples was uh, mentioned by name, uh, but also by association. And we need to remember that sometimes that, uh, that John, the, the evangelist, wrote this gospel uh, a lot of years after these things happened. John didn't write sometime until about the year 90 AD, which was about 60 years even after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But John knew the whole story and the importance of Peter. And so when Andrew is introdu introduced, John immediately as, uh, associates him with, uh, as Peter's brother. And though it isn't verifiable, the other disciple, we can kind of make some guesses, might have been John himself, the writer of this gospel. We don't know, but four other times in the gospel, John refers to himself in the third person without including his own name. So we see that, uh, says, so John tells Andrew's next steps. He said, uh, he said he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, a different John. We now have three Johns in this passage. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I love it that the very first thing that Andrew did after finding Jesus was to go and to tell his brother and to speak of word of clarity to him. Even in the other places in the gospel where Andrew is, is mentioned, uh, both in uh, chapter six and chapter 12, we find that Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. First they looked, then they saw, then they followed, and now they proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for for all of these years since the prophets. Finally, he was coming to offer salvation to those uh, who were looking for it. And for Peter, he stood before Jesus fully known, receiving a new name that marked his belief in who he was. Cephas is in Aramaic. Peter is the translation in Greek or Petros, and it means rock. Peter would no longer be called Simon, but now he would be called Peter, this rock, in accordance with his calling. You know, I, I can't be sure, 
but this certainly seems like he is referencing some form of new birth uh, that is happening in Peter as he begins to believe in who Jesus is. Simon was named by his father, but Jesus changes the emphasis of his name to Peter the Rock and the association by which he would be remembered from this day forward. When Jesus changed his name, he also changed his purpose. He would move from just being a follower to part of the foundation of the faith. I don't know about you, but when I think about the disciples and more specifically when I think about Peter, I often think about this gruff, rough, tough guy who's kind of a a little bit hard-headed. Well, here we're reminded that Peter was sensitive enough to his brother, Andrew, to respond. There must have been something within Peter that had his heart as well inclined to the, the story, the waiting of the Messiah who would to come because Andrew comes and speaks one thing, as we have found the Messiah, and Peter immediately goes, something soft within his heart. When I was in high school, just after I had come to faith and accepted Jesus's gift of salvation in my own life, I began attending a youth group at a a church that a friend of mine was going to. And as you can imagine, at 15 years old, uh, I might not have always been uh, the one, especially 15-year-old boys, the ones who pay the most attention to the teacher. But God was doing something in my life. And one night after the Bible study on a Sunday night, my youth leader pulled me aside and he said, he told me that he noticed something during the Bible study time. While many of the other kids were distracted or bored or only paying half attention to what was happening, he said that my posture sitting in the chair was not only listening, but I was leaning in towards him because of my interest in what he was saying. He told me that he appreciated my attention and then he encouraged me by saying that God was willing to reveal his wisdom to those who are inclined towards him to listen. As I look back, that might have been one of the very first moments in my life when I realized that God was doing something different in me, different than was what was happening in the lives of my friends. And it made me keep leaning in uh, into uh, involvement in my church, but also uh, leaning into a fascination with his word. Uh, And for some odd reason, as uh, a high school student, I didn't miss another day of reading my Bible until I graduated. It was just something happening in my life. Have you ever thought, it got me thinking about that. Have you ever thought about the, the, the youth of, uh, of the day when Jesus and Peter and the disciples were all kind of growing up together and how he presented, uh, before he presented himself in ministry, what that might have looked like? I think about the settling in Galilee and sometimes I wonder, this is the thought that came up into my strange mind this week. Could it be that Jesus had eaten Peter's fish And had Peter ever sat in one of Jesus's chairs, being a carpenter? How did they know each other? 
did they know of each other? We don't know about the size or the magnitude of the ripple of Jesus or John the Baptist's upbringing, but certainly with the number of miracles that happened in their youth, those stories had to slip out in Galilee for people to understand that something was happening, even strangely, in the house of, uh, of, of Mary and Elizabeth. But regardless of how Peter had known Jesus uh, before, things started making sense to him, possibly for the very first time. Peter, Andrew, and the, uh, the other disciple, whoever it was, had been waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come. And now they were willing to act on their hope to see uh, if it, the, that the, the words and the man could fit together. And Jesus had them convinced that it did. Now I know that many of you have been waiting for many years for something much more important than a Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl. And much of that waiting for you has been painful. Fighting to even keep an ounce of hope that Jesus could make all things right. Whether it's been pulled from a difficult circumstances that you're now facing, or waiting for a family member to come to know the Lord, whether it's a change in your marriage or even in your marital status. Maybe it's just waiting to see uh, how a relationship with Jesus can make a difference in your life to give it meaning and purpose. This morning, so many years later, Jesus is still inviting us to come and see. Can we take the burdens that we are now bearing and bring them to Jesus? Can we be brave enough to open up a little space, a little place in our hearts to make room for hope? Can we actually believe that the closer that we move to him, the more that we respond to his invitation and the more that we can know the plans for him are good, that he has for us are good. They aren't always easy but his plans for us are always good. I wanna end this morning with six, uh, six different little quick steps of application for us. The first is, are we able to incline our hearts? Can we sit in that place uh, and say, Lord, that if you move, if you speak, if you present yourself, that my heart is already waiting for you? Am I in the place to even be able to hear from the Lord? Are we waiting, listening, believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of our deepest longings? The second is to ask. Ask the Lord, where is he going? And are we able to, to follow along with him as we live out our own lives? Are we spending time to understand what he's doing in our community so that we can join with him instead of having the expectation that he would join with us in the plans that we have made? Are we willing to follow, not just to come to church as a habit, but to get involved in such a way that helps us to grow, whether that's through a Bible study or one uh, of our other uh, activities that we have going on? Are we gonna join a small group, put ourselves under the teaching of other people, to follow Jesus in the lives that we are living. We need to know how to follow, how to become more 
like him? Are we inviting others like Andrew to join us in this journey? Whether that's again to church or some other church program or is it in your own home or in your own life so that people can see your life and your love and hear your words to explain what God has done to transform your own existence. Tell people that mean the most to you and all of the people that God has put in your path. Are we going to come, to come as we are as Simon, but to be ready to be changed into Peter? When we experience the presence of God, we will not be able to stay the same person who we, who we were. And are we willing to abide, to spend some time with Jesus in prayer and in devotion, learning to make our relation with, relationship with him our highest priority and a daily event? In the end, can I encourage you again this week to pick up a gospel of John and to spend some time there? to read it, to prepare, not just for the coming of Easter, but to expectantly wait for Jesus to show up in our lives. Next week, we're gonna be talking about Philip and Nathaniel and what it means to, to come and to be fully known as we stand before Jesus. But before we go, let's hear a story about someone who has changed as they encountered Jesus. On the video. Yo conocí a Cristo en el año 1991. Eh, estaba yo a inicios de high school y una amiga mía pues me compartió del evangelio. Había algo en ella diferente que yo notaba y me acerqué y tuvimos una conversación muy linda y esa tarde juntas ella me guió a cómo yo iba a recibir a Jesús en mi corazón. Oré al Señor y desde ese día pues fue algo diferente eh, mi manera de ver la vida, de cómo proyectarme, de saber que yo también era pecadora, que necesitaba de un Salvador. Y eso fue lo más especial que a mí me sucedió aquella tarde de 1991. Pero lo primero que hice fue algo. No quise quedarme con esa buena noticia y lo primero que quise hacer fue ir y compartirlo con mi familia. Porque yo decía, mi familia necesita escuchar esto. Sí, yo recuerdo eh, que mi hermana llegó a la casa y comenzó a compartirnos la, las buenas nuevas del Evangelio y, y hasta ahora ha sido lo mejor que, no, que nos ha pasado porque la familia pudo conocer de Jesús y recuerdo incluso que ella ya venía con la dirección de una iglesia eh, que esta amiga le había compartido y, y ella me dijo, este fin de semana, el domingo, tenemos que ir a una iglesia. Ya ella venía en la mente, sabía la dirección de la iglesia, cómo llegar hasta esta iglesia y eso fue lo que hicimos. Eh, inmediatamente ese domingo eh, fuimos a esta iglesia, visitamos eh, la iglesia bautista en La Habana, el Calvario, y allí comenzamos. Eh, nuestro camino eh, en lo que fue la fe eh, allí nos bautizamos allí dimos testimonio eh, allí también nos capacitamos eh, con los diferentes cursos para hoy 
eh, poder servir al Señor entre la niñez. Y ahora que bueno, estamos acá en este país y que también eh, estamos sirviendo al Señor eh, acá. Hoy estamos aquí en este gran país, eh, estamos juntas como hermanas, gracias a Dios, y felices de haber podido tener este comienzo de conocer a Cristo por alguien que Dios usó para hablarme a mí, yo poder llevar este evangelio a mi familia y hoy poder estar juntas aquí también sirviendo al Señor en Midtown. This is perfect point. 